Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like expanding capacity for sustainable aviation fuel and biodiesel in Washington state and bringing massive new infrastructure online in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Kara Swisher, and you're listening to Sway. I have a confession. I'm not much of a sports gal. In fact, I refer to all games as sports ball. But I decided it's time to get myself a bit of sports education. Enter my guest, Kathy Engelbert, the commissioner of the WNBA. Engelbert has made some big moves for the league in the past year. She increased players' salaries and oversaw a season where ratings for the WNBA's finals went up 15%. This, by the way, happened while the men's finals saw a 49% drop in viewership. And yet, in terms of hard numbers, many more people are still watching the men, and there's more money for them, too. This isn't just a WNBA problem. It's a sports problem at every level. Female athletes everywhere are challenging that status quo. Whether it's the U.S. women's national soccer team pressing for equal pay or a college basketball player named Sedona Prince creating a viral TikTok pointing out how unequal the NCAA's weight rooms were. So I wanted Engelbert's take on the state of women's sports, starting with what she thought of the weight room disparity. Yeah, so it's not about counting the weights in a weight room. It's about the whole ecosystem around sports and women's sports. So in sports, what I've learned, we're a microcosm of the broader society, right? Whether it's a patch on a uniform, a placement on the court or a field or franchise value, it all comes down. How is that being valued? And it's being valued based on what I believe are decades old quantitative metrics that apply to the men's game and then the discounts provided um, is, you know, basically chopped off for the women's game. So the men's game has been around a lot longer than ours. The NFL just passed 100 years. MLB is over 100 years, NHL over 100 years, the NBA is reaching 75 years this next season after this. So we're reaching our 25th year. So I would say 40 years into those other leagues, even 25 years, we're probably ahead as far as how we're evolving the league, the players, the marketing, the exposure, but we still have an enormous amount of work to do. And so there's talk about equality in women's sports, which dates back uh, decades or generations. Is equality the goal or is just making more money? Like I would assume both at the same time because money tends to speak, right? Yeah, I think it's actually equity is the goal, um, not necessarily equality. And it's essentially to get the value based on how fans are engaging, how they're watching the league, how many, how you bring them in. We skew younger, we skew more diverse, we skew more female. And that should be to a company who's trying to sell to their customer base, that should be pretty attractive and it should be valued in the algorithm. So Mm -hmm. if you're, you know, 80% of all consumer purchasing decisions, household decisions are made or influenced by a woman. Right. Okay. So one of the quickest ways to assess equity in this conversation is about pay. NBA players make a ton more money than your athletes. Top players in your league can earn $500,000 annually, and that's way more uh, than they used to get, but it's still less than the minimum salary over 800000 for NBA players. And top players in the NBA obviously earn twenty to $40 plus million. And Mark Cuban, who owns the Dallas Mavericks, has argued that this pay gap is because of a difference in revenue. 
Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, the goal is not to compare ourselves to big men's sports league that have been around for 50 to 80 years more than we have. The goal is to have a very competitive collective bargaining agreement where it's not just when you sit down and talk to the WNBA players, it's not just about pay Mm -hmm. Um, because they're moms, because they're average 25, 26 years old and want to start a family someday. So because they want better travel, they want two bedroom apartments when they're in season. So we put together a package that was very progressive around family planning benefits, mother benefits, fertility treatments, as you mentioned, a dramatic increase in cash compensation. Um, We also promised that they'd have the ability to earn more compensation. And one of the ways they're going to do that is through special competitions this year. And just in the Commissioner Cup final, the winning team will be able to earn in excess of 30,000 per player. Right. So we've got to build assets so that we can get sponsors to come in and players can get earn more money. I mean, ultimately, it's nice to have an apartment, but I, like people say things like that to me. I'm like, just give me the money. I'll spend it any way I like. Like, give me the equal money and that's fine. Um, but in the NBA, about 50% of the league's revenues go towards men's salaries. In the WNBA, it's closer to 20%. The women's players fought for 50% in this new agreement and got it sort of. That split will apply this year if the league makes certain considerations, correct? Yeah, I think you have a little apples and oranges right, in the comparison. Um, but, you know, uh, as you look at the revenue model for our league, you know, the media revenue. Um, so the players will participate in uh, 50% of a revenue share. But we're in a growth mode right now. And I think three to four years down the road and as we go into the next collective bargaining negotiation, we'll be in a much better place to have apples and apples when you Mm -hmm. compare to the provisions in the agreement. But uh, I think our players were very pleased overall with what they negotiated and we negotiated hard on those points uh, around a revenue share. But I think what they're really looking for is to participate in helping market the league, helping tell their stories. So then when you're negotiating your next deal, whether it's a media deal or a corporate sponsorship, you have the eyes on the game and the value is there. Low pay and benefits also affect play. In 2018, more than half of the WNBA's athletes played overseas in the winter to supplement their income. It's obviously they could get sick, they could get tired, uh, injured. Um, Do you see this uh, as an issue and do you want this to be phased out? Well, you know, we need to work with FIBA, which is the international organization governing basketball. And there's a division in Europe, et cetera. um, And they run a World Cup. So, yeah, we need to work together um, on them to make sure our schedules don't overlap. Uh, But I'll tell you, some of our players who don't get a lot of playing time here in the WNBA because we're the best league in the world, you know, probably need to go play overseas. And then some of our our star players and early in their career, they want to get better. They want to be more dominant. Um, and you see that with a, an athlete like Brianna Stewart. And yes, they make significant money as well overseas. So it's not always a bad thing. Obviously, people get hurt in sports all the time. And whenever a player of ours gets hurt overseas, they say, oh, that's because the WNBA is this broken model where it, that's not, I mean, people get hurt. But we did negotiate in the collective bargaining agreement as we get into the third or fourth year of this agreement, a what we call prioritization uh, element where players will need to be on time to training camp or they won't be able to play in the WNBA. Right. I'd assume you'd want to phrase this out. It's like a second job, essentially. 
Yeah, th- this is definitely something that was really important to the owners um, because they're investing a lot in their team. And, and so we also enhanced off-season opportunities around internships. We should have done it this year, but because of the pandemic, because we couldn't do anything live. Uh, league marketing agreements will put significant dollars at the league level to, to a few players to do league marketing agreements. And they'll have to stay in the U.S. in order to um, be eligible for that, that cash compensation. So we're trying to find a lot of different ways, including with partnering with with uh, particularly the European leagues on their schedule and how that, you know, overlaps sometimes with our schedule. So you're working on this revenue model to help pay for this. So tell me, break apart the model a little bit. Explain where you look at sponsorships versus other opportunities for individuals where they could sign deals and speeches and whatever else they make from it. And, And are you taking any cues for the NBA? Talk a little bit about the model, how you look at it. Well, again, from the NBA, we use the the strength of their brand because we share that brand. And then it's about looking for companies who want to support, you know, young, diverse women because they believe that they're the next generation of leaders. Just another thing from a business perspective, every time I meet with a potential sponsor or partner, I say, what are your, your growth objectives? And usually when they tell me, I can find some way that WNBA and partnering with us can help. And especially with the growing digital native generation becoming consumers, you know, like one of our strategies is what are some other assets? Like this Commissioner's Cup is an asset. Is there esports for women? Because that's underinvested in. What are the other adjacencies that we can invest in around innovation? Um, wearables and how can that be integrated into the broadcast to make the game more interesting to a viewer, especially a digital native viewer? So so you've also launched Changemakers program at the WNBA with Deloitte, Nike, AT&T, and most recently Google signing on as partners. Um, these partnerships about supporting marketing and streaming efforts. Can you talk a little bit about the strategy to do that? Because you've got to get this in people's faces, presumably using the money from these massive corporations. Absolutely. So uh, it, it's so great that, you know, a company like Google stepped up to support the WNBA. And if you type WNBA in your Google browser, you got a confetti of our brand, our orange logo woman. So, you know, we need to continue to innovate within these partnerships because we do need those to support everything we negotiated on behalf of the owners as part of collective bargaining. Um, And we need more partners, bigger partners, and and those partners that really share the values of these WNBA players and really want to activate in a different way than maybe um, on the men's side with their partnerships. Sure. But now streaming, another thing is streaming in this business model you, you mentioned is a big part of the revenue, especially going forward. Last spring, a journalist tracked women's sports coverage by ESPN and found that there was no programming on its main station And its three primary networks, ESPN, ESPN2, and ESPN News, only aired nine and a half hours of women's sports programming. In comparison, the networks devoted 72 hours to cornhole, uh, a game where you throw beanbags at holes in plywood, which is a very riveting game. I get that. Um, (laughs) But what do you think is the reason why networks aren't covering women's sports? Well, it's a bit of a circular argument. A lot of times when you're talking to a media company, they're like, you know, not that they don't want to cover us and other women's sports. It's like they don't want to pay, you know, what I think we think the real value is to do it because they're saying, well, you don't have enough viewers. Well, but if we don't get more coverage and exposure, you're not going to get more viewers. And therefore, it's this circular Mm -hmm. argument that you never get out of. So I think what we're doing already with signing Amazon Prime, having signed Facebook and Twitter, 
obviously ESPN longtime partner, and we are on the ESPN major network, both for our draft. So I think the the tide is turning on this exposure topic. And again, as we think about how young fans and digital natives consume content and how much that's changed, you know, my kids will sit in front of the TV and they'll be second screening something else. And maybe, you know, there's other opportunities there. So I think streaming and reliance on digital platforms will become more important than ever. Um, It also gives you a lot of data behind how the fans engaging, how to target them. I know we've got some data uh, around how um, the average WNBA fan on social media is likely to be engaging in socially conscious type content in addition to the WNBA. So if a partner wants that kind of uh, customer, we're the lead. So one point, Kara, too, is like, Individual women's sports actually do pretty well. They've got some pay parity, especially at the tennis level. They've got superstars, household names like, you know, Serena Williams. Mm -hmm. So we've got to take that model and adjust it into the team environment where you have, we have 144 players, not one that we're marketing. And we want want to market and build household names. We want Mm -hmm. to market and build rivalries. Right. Right. Well, you have, I think you have no choice. I think broadcast networks just do what they want. In terms of ratings, the WNBA finals averaged 440,000 viewers for three games. And the NBA finals, which lasted six games, averaged uh, 7.5 million. Um, it's a delta, but it's also, uh, to me, o- online media is the only way to go. Well, and that's why you have to build. Like this year, we'll have 150 for the first time in our history, 150 national broadcasts through traditional and streaming. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, when you look at, again, the nature of the fan. If you build household names, just a few, and build a couple big rivalries, that's where you're going to get the 7 million fans watching. And the NCAA women's game has proven that when that UConn-Baylor game was on. So you have to have compelling you know, players and compelling rivalry. And that's what we're trying to build. Mm-hmm. So it'll, that'll take some time, Kara. But when I came in the league, I big studier of history. And 40 years into the NBA, they were on um, tape delay, the NBA finals. And they had this huge rivalry that came out of college in the Midwest. And it was Magic Johnson and Larry Bird. And then a few years later, you had Kobe and Shaq. And now you have Steph and LeBron and KD and all the other great. So there is somewhere I would study the history. Do you have one that you are watching? Well, right now, it's definitely Vegas and Seattle, who were the two best teams last year. Mm-hmm. And they both happen to be in the Western Conference. Um, Connecticut's going to be great this year. Chicago, Candace Parker, longtime player for uh, the Sparks. She now will be on um, Chicago. So I think you'll see a little Chicago, Los Angeles with Neka Agumake, who's the president of the, the Players Association. That's an emerging rivalry. So there's so many um, emerging ones. And you don't need 10 of them. You just need a few of them and a few household names. Yeah, you do. So one thing my son mentioned, and I think he's correct about, is we're conditioned to expect certain things because of the men's sports. In basketball, for example, there's dunking, uh, which is uh, exciting. Um, Sue Bird has talked about it. She said a little boy or a little girl goes to an NBA game. They want to see the crazy windmill dunk and be wowed because that's been rammed down our throat. We're conditioned to think that's the only thing that's great. You know, and a lot of women's players do dunk. Not that many, but but they do, but it's not quite the same twisty windmill donkey thing that you see the men doing. Um, do you have to do that? Do you have to mimic that? Or do you think there's other ways? 
I do not think so. I think, you know, obviously our the men's game is played above the rim at both the college and the pro mm-hmm. level. The women's game is not played above the rim. I even know we have some fabulous athletes who do dunk. Um, and I had this colleague from, you know, where I used to work who came to me and said, you know, for his daughter and son, he said the first game I want them to be exposed to is a WNBA game, not an NBA game, because he wanted them to see the pure form of the sport, the pure running of the pick and roll, the pure running of how to get positioned off of a pick for a three point shot like Diana Taurasi and uh, Sabrina Ionescu did. Uh, they both hit game winners with, you know, less than a second or so on the clock on Friday night in our opening night. So can't ask for a better script there. But, you know, I, I have no concerns about changing the game. As I said, this foundation on which the game sits, including the game and the brand, are very strong. We'll be back in a minute. If you like this interview and want to hear others, follow us on your favorite podcast app. You'll be able to catch up on Sway episodes you may have missed, like my conversation with Nick's superfan, Spike Lee, and you'll get new ones delivered directly to you. More with Kathy Engelbert after the break. If you had more time in the day, would you take a nap, read a book, talk with a friend? When something's important to you, it's easier to make time for it. Therapy can help you decide what matters most. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on your schedule. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash hardfork today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash hardfork. I use the New York Times Games app every single day. I love playing Connections. With Connections, I need to twist my brain to see the different categories. I think I know this connection. Look, Bath is a city in England, Sandwich is a city in England, Reading is a city in England, and I'm going to guess Derby is a city in England. I started Wordle 194 days ago, and I haven't missed a day. The New York Times Games app has all the games right there. I absolutely love Spelling Bee. I always have to get genius. I've seen you yell at it and say, that (laughs) should be a word. Totally should be a word. Sudoku is kind of my version of lifting heavy weights at the gym. At this point, I'm probably more consistent with doing the crossword than brushing my teeth. When I can finish a hard puzzle without pins, I feel like the smartest person in the world. When I have to look up a clue to help me, I'm learning something new. It gives me joy every single day. Start playing in the New York Times Games app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash games app. So stepping back, you know, you came in the middle of a pandemic from Deloitte, essentially. So talk about your background a little bit. What was your first move when you got here? Yeah, so um, I came in and my first thing to do was to assess the the economics of the league and what's wrong, what's not. I did a 12-city tour, so I joined... Pre-pandemic, pre-pandemic, right? Pre-pandemic, yes, because I came in a little bit halfway through the 2019 season, which actually was really helpful because we had, then we got to October and we got into the, the guts of the collective bargaining. So I needed to go out to meet the entire system, the 
uh, arena workers, the the players. I mean, I didn't know anybody coming into this role. The right. the coaches, the general managers, the team presidents, the owners, the media, the you know fans. The fans were my favorite part. The officials and um, and so you know really assessed at that point what should our strategy be? How do we transform? How do we do this in a way that protects the integrity of the game and and advances the brand because my assessment was the foundation of the game and the brand are extremely strong, but the ecosystem and the organization and the teams, we need a whole transformation around that. So I came up with three pillars. Mm -hmm. One was we're going to be a very player first league. The second one is we're going to look at um, stakeholder success and those stakeholders range from players to fans to uh, the owners. And then the third one was the fan experience, fan engagement. And that's what we're doing. And, and if it wasn't for the pandemic, I think we'd be a little further along. But having to put on a season in a bubble last year was not easy. Probably in my 35 years in, in business, two of them and almost two of them in sports, the hardest thing I've ever done. Um, yeah. So how much did it set you back, the pandemic? Yeah. The good news is I actually don't think in the end, like had we not had a season with our size and scale, it would have been existential and would have set us back enormously. And I'm not sure whether it would have been recoverable in five years or 10 years, but it would have been long term. I think because we had a season, a 22 game season, so reduced, but we had it. And so I'm a huge believer in that a crisis tends to amplify your weaknesses, but is absolutely the time to actually fix things and innovate. And we innovated through a second screen experience where we had 140 million fans tap on our Tap to Cheer app digitally. And then you can grab data from there. You can draw in new fans. When will sports be though normal again? I think going, attending. How do you look at that? Well, you know, even, I mean, I'm in the New York area. Even New York came out and said for fully vaccinated fans, you can go to full capacity in a place like Madison Square Garden or the Barclays Center. So we have to take a a break during the Olympics this year. We're really hoping coming off the Olympic breaks, we'll get more into substantial capacity. I'm not sure it'll be full, full, Mm -hmm. but really good sign going into the NBA playoffs, for instance, that um, some of these arenas now, states will start allowing full capacity. And, you know, when a shot is made to hear that roar, it's really important, I think, for the future of the game. So did I hear it? You think the Olympics will go ahead? So far, the Olympics are going ahead. You hear different things about spikes in COVID in Japan, but so far it appears that it'll go forward. I mean, it's not that far away. And uh, again, our players are preparing ultimately, you know, to head to Tokyo when we take our break after our all-star game this year. Okay, let's talk about the social justice issues because I think that got a lot of attention. The WNBA's last season was dedicated to social justice and the Say Her Name campaign, which advocates for Black women and girls who are victims of police brutality. As a league, why is the WNBA been so much more politically engaged in other leagues. Now, individual players in the NBA certainly are. LeBron James comes to mind. Um, is this a business decision for you? Do you think about it that way? Yeah, I think about it again as part of our main pillar about a player first league. And, um, you know, when you're leading a league of 80% women of color and the racial justice crisis hits um, in the form of the George Floyd murder. But I think these players go back and look at their history. This is not something they just started last summer. And I think they've done such important work in the community, whether it's around racial inequality or advocacy for LGBTQ plus or criminal justice reform like Maya Moore and Natasha Cloud on gun issues. So I'm just so impressed with these players. So that's why I say as the commissioner of this league, my responsibility, again, is to let the players lead and we'll amplify. And that's what we've done. 
So, but do you think it's a business asset? Like you were talking about assets. I do. I definitely do. Because as I was wrapping up my term at Deloitte, you know, when I started that term, I didn't spend any time on employee activism. By the end, I was spending significant time every week on employee activism. So as a a former CEO who was dealing with these issues, I think brands are now proud to partner with the WNBA because they know what these players stand for. They certainly have stepped forward a lot. The Atlanta Dream arguably helped flip the Senate uh, when they wore the shirts that said, vote Warnock in defiance of Kelly Loeffler. Uh, She was the co-owner of the team at the time, and she's written to you to criticize the league's statements on Black Lives Matters. Can you talk a bit about the decision-making that happened when it came to making those statements, talking to the players? Yeah, I'll say, you know, I was sitting down in quarantine in Bradenton, Florida, and when kind of the letter came in and the, the, the associated media with it, again, it was... Okay, I understand this is politics. Um, I want to go talk to the players about it because, of course, their first reaction was, let's like campaign against and do all this stuff. And, you know, we just talked it through and they listened to me and I listened to them. I gave them my best advice about how to strategize. They then took that back, I think, led by Sue Bird. What was your advice? My advice was find elected leaders who share your values um, and get advice from strategists because you're not the expert at this and you need to make sure for your own brands that you are doing the right thing for you. I mean, I was pretty sure from a league perspective, we were going to continue to support what the players wanted to support uh, as a player-led league. But I, I did you know, counsel them. And I think Sue and others, Elizabeth Williams of The Dream, uh, stepped up to think through it. By the way, while playing at the highest uh, level competitively. Uh, you said the league uh, would not ask Loeffler to give up her ownership. Why not? Yeah, again, we evaluate all the time um, our owners, what they say publicly. Um, and, you know, we are a league that stands for inclusivity. We are a league that stands for tolerance. And if there was a point in time where I, I evaluated things that she was saying uh, that would um, be something I would take to the rest of the owners about whether she should be forced out, sure, I would have done it. But, you know, I wasn't seeing that. I was seeing a political campaign, political stances. Um, and again, that's why we advise the players that this isn't something if you're expecting us to take um, an owner out, you know, right now, it, based on the body of information I had at the mm-hmm. time, there was not uh, a basis to do that. And I think our ownership group agreed with that. OK. Do you think you'd make a different calculus on social justice if you oversaw a larger league? The WNBA, as you said, has 12 teams, 144 players. The NBA has 30 teams and over 500 players. Does that make a difference? I think it would be, again, if we had 500 players or 144, I think you actually have to build relationships with players and owners and and calculate and kind of see beyond. It's kind of like I I told the players, like, you're playing checkers. You need to play chess, right? Like, you need to be looking to the future as to what your brand you want to be and what you're going to do post your playing life. Don't just think about today and the impact you can have. You need to have a longer-term impact on whatever you decide to do here. So there was a little business tie-in. We got to take the the economics of this league to the next level. We're in a very politically divisive time in our country. But I do think, you know, having a very socially conscious, community-minded player set, whether it was 140 or four or 500, you know, and obviously they're not, they don't all share the exact same views. Have you had to deal with dissent from players who want to play basketball and don't want to be involved in social justice or players who have different political views? You know, players do have different views on, okay, this is my paycheck and I want to keep playing and I don't want to shut down this league. And I, you know, so absolutely you have to listen to the different, you have to listen to the 
the the majority, but you also have, also have to look at listen to the vocal minority. And we the players actually have an executive committee of the players' association who we met with every week leading into the tip of the season because so much was going on. It was so emotional. They had a huge burden. I mean, Neka Agumake, what a leader! She just stepped up. And I mean, if I was any company in this country, I would hire a Neka, you know, to uh, to work for me when she's done her playing career because she showed an enormous amount of leadership, but took an enormous burden on to make sure that she was listening to all aspects of where how players were feeling. And if you were a black player versus a white player, you might've been feeling very differently. We had players who were moms to sons. And I'll never forget, one of the players came to me the night of the Jacob Blake situation and said, Kathy, in 10 years, this could be my son. And she was extremely emotional. So listening and absorbing all of that was important. Mm-hmm. So in addition to racial justice, the League has also made strong statements supporting LGBTQ rights, uh, like supporting trans and non-binary players. Laisha Clarendon, when they received top surgery earlier this year, in contrast, the National Women's Soccer League stayed mum after Canadian player Quinn came out last year as trans. What prompted your decision to speak out? Yeah, well, first, as I think one of the most inclusive league in sports, what was important to me is that Lasia felt supported. So we're going to continue to speak out on those type of issues and support trans athletes and support Lasia and others as it relates to, you know, non-gender binary and all the things that have emerged again in society where once politics gets involved, it, it plays well in the media. But, you know, ultimately people ask me all the time questions and I go, oh, we're 100 percent supportive of, yeah. of our athletes. There's over six anti-trans sports bans has moved into sports really heavily passed by state legislatures so far this year. Nearly 70 more proposed bills related to sports are on the deck because their priorities are not quite in the right place. What do you think of this wave? Right. So, you know, we're fortunate because we're a team sport. And so we can be inclusive and anyone can play in our league. I can imagine for individual sports like track and field and other sports like that, it's, it gets a little more complicated. So, um, and again, I think a lot of the legislation's impacting youth sports, not professional sports. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, obviously our players are working on their activism at that level, at the state legislation level. And so certainly we weigh in and I'm on the phone all the time with people about these issues. Um, and ultimately, you know, we want the message to be, we're the most inclusive league in sports. So Renee, speaking of, um, People being able to be in charge of their own destiny, which is what that is all about. Um, Not all about, but it's partially about. Um, Renee Montgomery, the former player for the Atlanta Dream, is part of the group that ended up buying the Dream from Kelly Loeffler. Would you like to see more former players become owners? LeBron James has also said back in January he might be interested. How do you look at that, that kind of ownership structure going forward? Yes, um, absolutely. Renee is going to set the path to more former WNBA players, being owners. Now, the issue is whether you're an NBA player or WNBA, if you're a current player, you cannot own a piece of uh, of the team. But once you retire, you can, which is why Renee retired and she became eligible to become uh, a part owner in the Atlanta Dream. So I'm I, I just love that that happened and that that's going to set the blueprint for other WNBA former players to be owners. So now you've noted the possibility of expansion in the next year or so. The NBA, again, has three times as many players. Your virtual draft got attention this year by the number of top contenders who were passed by in the first round. So what's the timeline and the size of the expansion you're thinking about? Yeah, the depth and breadth in this league is is actually really getting impressive. The globalization of our player group, the our number two pick was from Finland this year. 
a lot queer. Um, and so there's so much potential here. But, you know, I am not a run to expand, then fix the economics of the league. We've got to do a little more transformation of the economics of the league coming off mm-hmm. this pandemic. And then um, we're absolutely going to be talking about expansion and um, because the talent is definitely there. And this is one you asked me earlier about, you know, where the pandemic was a disadvantage. This was one where it was a disadvantage. Had we been able to be growing our fan base and growing the economics um, at the team level, in addition to the league level, we'd be in a better position more short term for expansion. But, you know, we're definitely going to start thinking about that after we get through this season. How many? Where? Um, You know, the the where. I get a lot of um, requests for different cities. Uh, it'll certainly be something we're doing some data uh, gathering and analytics now on women's basketball and women's sports in different big cities across America. There were teams in Houston, for instance. Um, there was a team in Detroit, um, you know, the Bay Area. I, I mean, I'm a big fan of saying, yeah, you know, got if, some good teams. In the Bay yeah. And if technology is driving so much of your economy and you don't have a team, I mean, if you're a major professional sports league in the U.S. and you don't have a team in the tech center of the country, yeah, Bay Area would be pretty interesting. A lot of people say women's basketball would do great in Portland and Toronto and Philly and Nashville, Knoxville and, you know, Boston. So lots of cities thrown out there. I vote for San Francisco. <laughs> anyway, um, so is a completely independent WNBA a possibility? Complete independence from the NBA. Is that something you'd like to see? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, you know, Adam, when he hired me, gave me this commissioner title, comes with Mm -hmm. big responsibility and it comes with big empowerment to make decisions independently, but recognizing we always share a brand. So there's some things that totally make sense to share with the NBA and not be totally independent. And then there's things where I've been empowered to, you know, really be independent, like in our sponsorship platform and media deals. Right. Would you like to be completely independent? Yeah. I mean, I have a little bit of a different philosophy. You know, once we get the stakeholder success pillar in a better uh, place, you could then think about how it would look being independent. But would we bring in outside investors? Would we think about piloting how we could be more independent, how we could be more self-sufficient, how we could, you know, break some of the dependency? Sure. But as long as we share the brand and as long as it's working, and I think right now for me, it is, All right. Now, I know you have to go, but I have one more question. How do I convince my son that he doesn't need to see the dunk to enjoy women's right? Give me the line I say to him, because literally he drove me crazy in a car drive on the way down. Well, is he a big basketball fan? Yes, he is. He's a player, too. Yeah, he's a good player. Yeah. Has he spent the time to evaluate and watch the pace of our game, the level of our game, the athleticism of these players? So you've got to I mean, there is no one, male or female, that when they come to a game, walks out saying that wasn't a great product on the court. So, um, tell him to tell him to call me. I will. I will get him. I will. I, can you get a player to dunk on him though? He's six two, almost six three now. All right, we'll we'll get either Brittany Griner or um, I can't do it. I tried. I tried, Kathy. Tell him we have players six eight or, or taller. I said dunk a dunk to him, but I'm five two and he's six three, so it was an unequal situation. Anyway, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Bye. Take care. Bye bye. Bye. Sway is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Naima Raza, Blake Nishik, Hiba Elorbani, Matt Kwong, and Daphne Chen. Edited by Naima Raza and Paula Schumann, with original music by Isaac Jones, mixing by Eric Gomez, and fact-checking by Kate Sinclair. Special thanks to Shannon Busta, Kristen Lin, and Liriel Higa. 
If you're in a podcast app already, you know how to get your podcasts. So follow this one. If you're listening on the Times website and want to get each new episode of Sway delivered to you with a five foot two dunk a dunk, at least I learned something. Download any podcast app, then search for Sway and follow the show. We release every Monday and Thursday. Thanks for listening.